We good? All right, here we go. Locked and loaded. We're, we're, we're rooting for spring around here. If you've noticed, we've got a lot of cardinals. They're all over the room. We want spring to come. And we love that it's come a little early. I read an article from MLive this week that said the entire weather station of Fox News, the local one, has announced that winter has ended. So, so that's a good thing. We're, we're happy about that. We're continuing this morning to look at the Ten Commandments. We'll look at the third word, the third word from our Lord, and the text will be Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Before I read the text, as you're turning there, for those of you that are getting your Bibles out still, um, we have at least three more that will be baptized in March. We're going to be receiving some more. Yeah. We're happy about that for sure. Um, I do know that others are considering this, so be just in general prayer, thankful for God's movement and working. And uh, if you have professed faith in Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet, you should be baptized. It's uh, the first step of what is a lifelong endeavor that leads to eternity. Baptism simply identifies you to a local church. We baptize those who become a part of who we are because we believe that's the Bible's design for baptism. And so certainly there's no such thing as private Christianity. The Bible says with the mouth confession is made to salvation and so the public representation of that is the water of baptism signifying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then also what you do is publicly you identify to the world at large that you're a follower of Jesus. And so if you claim Jesus, it is first and foremost the Savior's command. And that should be embraced with great love. If I needed to get baptized again, I'd do it. <laughs> Thankful for Christ's love. Okay, the text. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Word. Thank You for the law. Paul wrote that the law is righteous and just and good. And we do give You thanks for the law because without the law, we would not have the understanding of sin. We would not have been able to identify ourselves as fallen, moved away from you who are our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we thank you for the law. And yes, 
in your divine, eternal plan, Father. We thank you for the gospel. The gospel is God's message. It's your message. It's not man's message, and we're, so we're not to monkey with it, become foolish with it. You left us your eternal and inerrant word inspired by your Holy Spirit. So what we're going to attempt to do is to preach the gospel from the third word. But the only perfect thing that has taken place nor will take place this morning are the, the words of verse 7. You are sovereign, God, and yes, you are good. So good that you save. Because we know that we deserve hell. Lord, I certainly know I deserve hell. So I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. It's uh, overwhelming. And too great for my weak vocabulary to describe. Yet, throughout this hour, we pray that your Spirit would illuminate the hearts and minds of the church to strengthen them. Lord, may they listen to the Word, receive it with joy, allow its correction, and then to joyfully obey obey it out of love. And Lord, if there's some that are sitting here that don't know Jesus, that have been deceived by Satan to think they know Jesus, I pray, God, that Your Spirit would break through their cold, callous heart as it did ours. As it broke through and invaded that room where I was alone. You were not a decision, Lord Jesus, on my part. You dominated me, crushed my corrupt callousness. Thank you for your mercy. You so convicted me of my sin even when I had those around me trying to tell me I was a Christian. You just lovingly pulled me to Yourself. We know, oh God, You are real. You are alive. Your presence, Lord Jesus, is in this room. Not just in the dead hearts that you have resurrected, it's because you are the King. There's no domain that you aren't present because you're God. We pray that all in this room would observe it so as Savior and not as a judge. For what awaits them as 
you as their judge is a fearful and eternal indignation of your holy wrath. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We pray in the name of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ten words, the Decalogue, the law ever remains with us, the first four being directed to God, the last six being directed to neighbor. This is where the Lord Jesus said everything hung on the law and the prophets. We're to love God. And we're to love our neighbor. God's name as Yahweh appears, now listen to this, 7,000 times in the Old Testament. 7,000 times. It is in the third command to do not take God's name in vain that we find ourselves this morning which would be the third word, the third command, and certainly the third direction that we have toward God, between you and God. The word vain that is used there, that we're commanded not to take God's name in vain, means the following. Okay, And this will help us, because we first want to understand what in the world was Israel having what, what was being commanded to them? What were they to understand? It means to, to view God empty. To see God as nothing or worthless. It means that God, for your life, serves no good purpose. Now, turn with me uh, to Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll come back, of course, to Exodus chapter 20. But here's what we know from our study. The book of Genesis presents God as the Creator. It's through the book of Exodus that we learn that God is holy and that He's to be revered and to be worshipped. And this collected people that God saved out of Egypt, God's people, were then to take this name of the Lord to the globe. They were to make the Lord's name famous. This is the command that God gives us. Um, now when you get to Ezekiel, um, clearly that has not been faithfully observed. Yet nonetheless, this is what God's plan and desire was for. Ezekiel chapter 36, look with me at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel. Okay, now understand this. This is not an ethnic people, though it is. The house of Israel was God's people. Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. 
and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. Notice there, the Lord is indicting God's people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. That, all caps, of course, has been mentioned many times from our pulpit, as Yahweh, 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Declares the Lord God, when through you, that is God's people, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That was the charge that was given to God's people. Now, the name of God and what they were to present was a proper understanding of God's character and who God is. God is, of course, holy. Which means He is other. He's outside of us. God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Holy Trinity, is without sin. God is just to deliver His wrath on any circumstance that He sees fit to exercise it. God is never not holy. Never. He's only holy. And we do well as Christians to understand we only deserve His judgment. His judgment will be laid hold on all those who reject Jesus. So for all of us, especially for those of you who are kind of moving through casually thinking about, yeah, do I take God or not? Do I take God? You don't have a choice. Otherwise, you're going to face that holy God in judgment. At the same time, thank God, in balance to His judgment, God is not only Creator, He is a God that is full of love. This Heavenly Father devised an eternal plan for His honor and glory to save many. That's why we're sitting here today. He is, he is full of love. And through His love, He delivers acts of mercy. Giving kindness and extending Himself to bring redemption and salvation. And yes, this was the role that God gave Israel, the house of Israel, to do. Read Isaiah 49, verse 6. God created this people to bring a light to the nations all across the globe. To make God's name known. That He's holy, that He's just, that He will deliver judgment on sin, and yet He's full of mercy and love and kindness. 
He extends himself to you, giving you and providing you redemption and salvation. And please understand this. It'll only happen in this life. This, of course, was Israel's role. Yet, instead, for much, if not nearly in the entirety, the Old Testament records their own rebellion. Yet, God would preserve His name and save some. Israel then was charged to not take the Lord's God's name in vain. And if they did so, He would not hold them, verse 7 tells us, guiltless. Now I want to give you four ways that Israel applied the third word and violated it in the Old Testament. And again, for time's sake, we won't turn there. The first one would be the one we understand that would to use God's name in blasphemy or curse God's name. That's found in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. So it's simply to use God's name in, in, in to curse Him. Another way that Israel did this, according to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, was to make a false promise. So, you were in like dialogue with someone else, and if you were to swear by God, and you made a promise to an individual it, that you had no intention to keep, then that was to take God's name in vain because you belonged to God. You were, of course, God's people. Curse God's name, make a false promise. The third way that Israel failed this were false visions or false claims. That is, so-called prophets would arise using God's name according to false visions and false claims. We should probably be careful, shouldn't we? How we uh, say God says things. Boy, don't watch Christian television. They're just destroying that. False visions, false claims. Stating words that came from God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 25. It's pretty serious to take God's name that way falsely. There's three. That's three ways. The fourth way According to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. Now, understanding, understand this. This was to God's people. They were taking God's name in vain when they would sacrifice children to Molech, they would kill their children, they would offer them as a sacrifice. Predominantly for this reason, because they were mixed marrying. 
and there were the God of Molech. So, God says this, who is the only author to life. God alone is the only one that gives life. Life physical, life spiritual. You can't take my children and abort them. In Ezekiel, we won't go there, but when God is dealing with this through the prophet Ezekiel, he literally says, They are killing my children. I say that because it's seeping into the church across America. It's unreal acceptance to this vile, wicked, satanical corruption. We're killing children. God says, if you do so, you are taking my name in vain. So those are the four reasons that Israel was charged and they violated the third command. Now, as a result of this, what the legalists did, they were so afraid of God's name as they begin to forbid people to use God's name. That God made a law, so we're just going to tighten it up a little bit. We'll make sure nobody screws up. You're not allowed to even use God's name. God never said that. God never commanded that. And then as a subsequent result of that, they were not even to spell out God's name. They shortened it. Legalists. The fear to misuse it, however right potentially the motive, was going to add to what God had actually said, which we're not to do that. As a result of this, it became only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could actually say God's name. But none of God's people ever did so because of the legalists. Wow, can you imagine that? Depriving families to love on the Lord God because they can't say His name. But this is, of course, we know to be true about legalists. Legalism kills. It destroys. It adds to or makes extra laws as if they didn't have an easy enough time Failing the ten. <laughs> they made up their own rules. Adding to God's word. And before I move past this, I think I want to kind of just say this in light to um, several things that we have dealt with, I know, in my uh, near 30 years here. Um, for most of you, to have an understanding of this, um, the church historic across the globe 
has only ever used wine in the, in the Lord's Supper. Um, and the wine was representative because that's what the Scripture used. Not to go into it, but Pastor Alex clearly demonstrated to that last week in the second word. But I, I do want to say this because it wasn't till the temperance movement in America that came from England in the late 1800s, but in America, it didn't really begin till like 1920 to 1933. It was the temperance movement. Please listen to this, please. I want you to pay attention to this because I'm going to try to help somebody. I want to help somebody. So if we get this a little messed up, please come to me if you're confused by it. Now, I want to say it to you because I love you. Okay? And certainly our elder charge is only to ever give the spiritual oversight to this congregation. Because that according to Acts chapter 15 is our charge. And just to kind of pull you, because probably some of you's sphincters are tight, and you're bracing up white-knuckling over this, we are going to give an account for it before God. So that's to say, my neck's on the line, as Pastor Alex's neck is on the line. There's a stricter judgment, James 3.1, for those who preach the word but think about this. Historically in the church, the church has only ever used wine in America until about 1920 to, to 1933 through the temperance movement, which was really political. But then this prohibition era steeped into liberal Methodists. And the liberal Methodists Meaning, what I mean by liberal is they denied the deity of Christ. It wasn't even Christian. They thought, we're going to make the world better by just pulling alcohol out of everything. So the church got an added thing that the world dictated to them. And the church says, oh, the world, we don't want the... We don't want the fear of the world. We're going, to, we're, going to go to, we're going to go to grape juice. And that's what happened. I grew up in a missionary Baptist church. Brother Griffith and Brother Settlemeyer were my pastors. And then Brother McQuarter became that as I ventured into Brother Hugel the third one, and then Brother McCorder when I went to college. Our church only ever used as a missionary Baptist church wine in the Lord's Supper. And look, at the only reason I'm mentioning this is because I know some of you have come from a teetotaler uh, circumstance. And actually, if you Google this and look at the history, it's actually called teetotalism, which means I won't touch... Alcohol And in the church, for the last hundred years, what's happened is there's this false piety 
of righteousness and holy, holiness. Calling it holiness. But I don't touch it. I don't touch it. So somewhere along the way, this church that was founded as Ryan Road Missionary Baptist Church adhered to God's Word on the supper using wine, and then it changed. And I don't know when it changed, because nobody here is old enough to... I, I've, I've talked to virtually everybody that's old, <laughs> that's been here a while. And that's okay. I mean, that's okay. I, you know, just to ease this now, because this is applicable... to what those legalists did then. And it's the, really the distinct area that we struggle with legalism here um, in talking to people that perhaps might be mortified or petrified over the fact that we could use wine in the Lord's table when wine is what Jesus used. It's what Jesus used. And I would, I would ask you, I would challenge you, listen, separate from me, though I would be there if you wanted to come to me, honestly, I'd help you every way I can, even though some, the Spirit of God uh, exercised my heart of my legalism. So you might be thinking, Kevin, is it wrong to use grape juice? I don't think so, that it's wrong. Obviously, I've been doing it, and I was taught that through a portion of college of the Baptist Bible Fellowship. They weren't missionary Baptists. Um, and, you know, I was, a, quite honestly, a young, stupid kid and wasn't thinking too much about it. Um, but I was trying to learn how to study the Bible for the sake of I could practice Christianity. The intent to go one year turned into an eventual cramming six years into four, as my dad used to say. So you'll, get, you'll catch that in a minute. You guys can relax about the wine for just a minute. Please relax. I'm not trying to chase anybody. I'm trying to help somebody. But I do think it would be best if we used wine, and this is the reason why. Because the wine represents the suffering, its bitterness of Christ. And it also reminds us of our own sin caused Jesus to suffer. That doesn't mean we're going to go to it. But I pray by God's grace we'll eventually at least allow both. And I know that could be a problem there. It could be a, it could be a, a Romans 14 problem where one side would look at the other side if they used wine in judgment and then the ones that use wine could look at the woes in the grape juice and they could hold them in contempt and it could divide this body. But please listen to this. Wine was only ever used in the church historic and Jesus himself served wine when he transitioned the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper. And all of God's people said, what? That's what happened. So wrestle with your own legalism. Be careful not to call something sin that God ordained. Please, do that. Well, enough of meddling. Let's go to the second aspect of this. 
as I transition to look at Jesus and how Jesus followed and obeyed and fulfilled it, you know what I don't want? I don't want legalism anywhere in this place. Because I live too long in it. And it destroys people. It not only views the letter of the law, it doesn't even do that. It goes past the letter of the law. Some of you need to get over it. And this isn't couched with anything but straight head on. If you think somebody uses wine or alcohol that they're living in sin, then you've just added to what the Bible has said. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. You probably would struggle with that too. <laughs> of course, I grew up in a hillbilly church. My grandfather smoked a pipe every night in Tennessee and every uh, deacon smoked cigarettes. I never heard it was even an issue until I went to Bible college. And then everybody's telling me what's wrong and I'm like, whoa, whoa, my family's doing that. <laughs> but Jesus followed and obeyed and fulfilled Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Jesus never took His Father's name in vain. Jesus never profaned God's name. In John chapter 17, verse 2, it's his intercessory prayer, and some people have offered, did Jesus need to do so? Yes, he needed to do so in his humanity. Because he was setting aside the prerogatives of his deity. He didn't lose any of them. Please understand that. He set aside the prerogatives of his deity becoming truly human. And he said, Father, I've glorified your name with my life. And he's on the very precipice of dying and going to the garden. Jesus, dear friends, Never profane God's name. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus would tell the Pharisees in their hatred for them, He said, I and my Father are one. And they went ballistic. One God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Yeah. That's what it is. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Our God, of course, is one in three distinct persons. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm in the right spot. Not in a Jehovah's Witness Synagogue or church or whatever they call them. I and my Father are one. Meaning this. We are one in nature. 
And it set the Jews so ballistically crazy, they wanted to kill him because they knew he was expressing that he is deity. Jesus never made a false claim from the Father. Jesus never made a false promise from the Father. He only revealed the Father. And then He told everyone that no one would come to the Father unless they came through Me. Jesus. Jesus followed, obeyed, and fulfilled the third command. Jesus loves children. He loves children. The disciples were telling Jesus to let the kids scurry along. You're just pestering our Lord. And Jesus said, hey, hey, hey. Jump back. Let these little children come to Me. Because the kingdom of heaven is filled with these little boogers. And that's why we don't mind if they're in the service and they're moving around and they're, 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 they're scuffling and we hear their coos and their cries. Jesus loves the children. Jesus gave the children life. Jesus gave you your life. He gives you your breath. According to Acts. It's in Him we live and move and have our being. Oprah, Bill Gates, God's the author of life. And Jesus loves children, and so guess what? We love children. We want people, according to the will of God, to have babies, and we certainly want life preserved in our society in this Molech-loving country of ours. What do we get out of this? Jesus only followed and obeyed God's will. Jesus kept the law. He kept the third command. He kept the Decalogue. The entire ten words. He did so in thought, word, and deed. Fully, completely, Perfectly righteous Son of God. But Jesus didn't merely obey. Jesus wasn't just willing. Jesus endured. Jesus persevered. And He didn't do so drudgingly. His motive was love of His Father He loved His Father so. He didn't just say, I'm willing to go, but I'm going to go. Because you want me to go. And you, Holy Father, designed the plan. And I'm going to do it because I love you. I love you, Father. Jesus did so out of love. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Got to keep going here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
So Paul's setting a defense. Corinth, many of them get right, but man, let's be honest, they were a loose cannon. They're all doing what they want to do. And this beautiful, probably the most brilliant man on the earth, if not the top five at the time, he's setting a defense for his ministry and how he's changed plans. But I want, to, I want you to catch a glimpse of this because Jesus obeyed the law and fulfilled the law and thought, word, and deed, and he did it out of love, and he did it for the glory of his Father, which is the opposite of taking the Father in vain. Look at verse 19. So he's describing what he's going to do. He says, For the Son of God, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed you, this is his missionary team, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him, that's Jesus, it's always been yes. Why? For all of God's promises... Those promises come to us from the covenants. All of the promises of God find their yes in Him that is Jesus. This is why it is through Jesus that we Christians utter our amen to God for His glory. Because Jesus only ever glorified God's name. Jesus in love fulfilled to the T God's mission, God's plan for redemption. And as a result, He honored and glorified God with all of His life. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection accomplishes in love. That was His motive. The Father elected you, Ephesians 1, in love. Before the foundation of the world, God said He knew you. No, that's not a crystal ball. To no one in the Old Testament represented intimacy. It was physical intercourse. But for us, God loved you. He chose to grace you. And if He didn't, you wouldn't be saved. You didn't figure it out. You didn't come from a great home. Your home is filled with a bunch of corrupt sinners as mine is. What love is this? How does that expressed? I don't have the vocabulary. How can you sit there and reject Jesus and think you're just coming to church? You're acting a fool. Deceived by Satan. God will not hold you guiltless 
but guilty. Because you have failed the third command. You have failed the Ten Commandments. Every one of you, me first, in thought, word, and deed. What do I do? Where do I take my guilt? Because Jesus loved me enough. To die for me. He bears my guilt. And I am not guilty. Because God worked repentance in me. He let me know, Kevin, you are guilty. It doesn't matter what all those people in the church are telling you. You're going to go to hell. And I'm telling you, in July 9th, 1972, I thought I was going to hell. The healthiest little knot-headed, stupid Hazel Park kid alive. I was guilty. He revealed to me in that moment, and I was growing up, I needed, I needed forgiveness. I needed him. I'm so glad he didn't leave me alone. And then he began to work in my heart this godly sorrow. Lord, I'm sorry. I wronged you. Repentance was at work. Not a repentance of me cleaning up my life. I couldn't clean my life up. And through that dark moment, He extended His mercy to me. And He began to direct my mind to His Son. And I had the knowledge of the Gospel that God was holy, that Jesus was the pure, living and dying and resurrecting Savior. And yes, I had the knowledge in a personal way that I was the guy who was wicked in Romans 3. That I was the guy that needed a Savior. And I assented to those things internally. Because I had been taught them my whole life. But now they were coming to me differently. And I burst into my mom's room who promptly tried to tell me I was a Christian and I said, no, I'm not. Nope. But I need Jesus. My dad was in the shower. We knelt by the bed and I trusted that night in Jesus to save me, man. And He did. He did. He saved me, man. And since that day, even when I veered off the road, the Christian way, deep down in my soul that I know that I've only trusted Jesus, and Jesus was, He was rearing me back to the way. 
You need to repent, man. You need to believe. What in the world are you gripping about? Who do you have to impress? You got a buddy that's going to criticize you? Are you going to damn your soul to hell because you won't take Jesus? What is wrong with you, man? Don't, don't jeopardize your life. You got no promise that you're going to make it home today. I beg you, I beg you, come to Jesus, man. Come to Jesus. How does the church apply this? How do we apply the word? Well, first of all, let's start simple. Okay, let's, let's start simple. Don't use God's name in a cuss word. Don't use his name in a cuss word. That's simple. That's the one that everybody thinks this is. And it is, in part, but oh boy, it's not the only thing. We saw how Israel took God's name in vain. But you remember the definition? We as Christians take God's name in vain when you live your life with no thought of God. You come here, you do your time. Man, I wish you would get over with. I'm starving. It's an hour and a half. You simply leave this place and you give God not a second thought. You're living your life yeah, I'm going to make money. I'm going to do things my way. And there is no purpose for God. None. You are taking God's name in vain. You are living as if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are worthless to you. It's what you're doing. You're guilty. Oh boy, here comes another one. This is not going to fit well with American evangelicalism. It's thoughtless worship. It's thoughtless worship. It's going to this church because they got a hip band. They even let musicians play that don't know Jesus. What kind of nonsense is that? They keep repeating the same verse over and over and there's this mindless, spasmodic, erotic emotionalism. It makes them feel good. But there's no worship of God. There's no adoration for God. There's no obedience to God. Worship is a life. It's a life. It's not a 15 minute to half hour segment. Why do you think we're so focused on the lyrics? I got knot-headed friends that don't even use biblical music. They'll use the Beatles or whatever to be relatable. <laughs> so stupid. Too many stupid pastor conferences thinking we're going to figure everything out. 
It's sickening. Don't you think it makes God want to barf? Because here's what we're doing in American evangelicalism. People want salvation, so we cheaply give it to them, but they don't want the Savior. People want the gifts. They want eternal life. They like the dressed up nature of what Christianity is, but they don't want the giver. The gospel is God's. It's God's. It's not ours to be played with. Thank God weekly, we are offering you life through the Son. We got about what, six, seven weeks left before Easter. We do Easter so well here. The whole week. Beg your friends to come. We're not doing it so we can look like we have a full house. Beg them to come because we're going to offer life by God's grace. And while we have breath in this life, the free offer of the gospel goes forward. Godly worship, obeying the third command, defines to us who God is. It defines to us what God did. Bad theology and doctrine takes the name of God in vain. Man-centered theology takes the name of God in vain. It makes God about that much bigger than we are. Ooh, what a lie that is. Jacob Arminius. We need a high view of God. We need a high view of God so we can honor Him and we can glorify Him and we can magnify Him and we can get past our narcissistic selves and love God. And then love our neighbor. Because we know we don't deserve this salvation that God richly gave us. It doesn't matter if they're white, black, red, yellow, orange, orange. <laughs> they're mine. <laughs> Remember that commercial. It doesn't matter who they are. We need a love for people. Don't point them to your cleaned up life. It ain't that clean. Silly sinners. God, help us to love You, Heavenly Father. Help us to love You, Lord Jesus, Your, your only Son, and help us to love the Holy Spirit that brought us life. Let's pray. Father, now as we go to this heavenly meal that we're going to dine at, Forgive our church, God, I ask, where we've stooped ourselves in our own self-righteousness and legalism against the name of God. May it be rooted out of this place. I pray it be rooted out of the hearts and minds of people. Lord, cause them to wrestle with the reality of who You are, the power of Your Word, I pray for that.
I pray for them. I pray, Lord, for some who need to publicly confess you in baptism, that they'll come to us and tell us they want to be baptized in March and that they'll sign up the church membership because they've been so convicted by God that this is a biblical church that they want to join us. Lord, give them the strength and the power to resist their pride and to become a part of this beautiful group of people known as Christ Community Church. Save those, Lord, that are just hoping the next five minutes to end quick and they can get the heck out of here. Lord, convict them like you did me. Convince them of their corrupt, wicked sin and where it's destined to. Lord, may they see the beauty of who you are in your mercy to provide us your son, Jesus. May they be saved. Right now, may they be saved. We ask these things in the